It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, listening friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? The largest wooden ship ever built in modern times was completed in 1909 by the firm of Percy and Small in Bath, Maine. They named it the Wyoming because Governor Brooks of Wyoming was one of the chief investors. The odd thing is Wyoming is a landlocked state with no ocean port. Then again, Wyoming is a very big state and this ship was enormous. It was a six-masted schooner with a length of 450 feet from tip to tip. This made the Wyoming the largest wooden ship ever built. Her six masts towered 120 feet above the deck, and they flew 12,000 yards of sail. To build the hull alone required a virtual forest of one and a half million feet of pine. And the Wyoming was a workhorse that could carry 6,000 tons of coal. But because of her extreme length in the wood construction, the Wyoming tended to flex and creak in heavy seas, causing the long planks to twist allowing seawater to leak in the hold. The colossal ship had to use pumps constantly to keep her hold free of water. After 15 years of service, in March 1924, the Wyoming floundered and sank in a heavy storm with all hands. You know, the Bible says there was another wooden boat about the same dimensions as the Wyoming, built by craftsmen that had never been to sea, and yet it survived the worst storm in history. I'll give you two guesses, Pastor Ross, what boat we're talking about. <laughs> I think we all know. We're talking about Noah's Ark, which, interestingly enough, it's it's very close to the size of uh, the Wyoming. That's right. Uh, probably not as wide, definitely not as, you know, the the Ark was much higher. and Different draft. I think they just had a picture on the screen of the Ark encounter. You and I were there mm-hmm. in, uh, I forget, what is that, in Kentucky? Kentucky. Yeah. And that's quite a, and it's supposed to be built to scale. Yes. But that, and that's quite an experience. But uh, according to the Bible, the ark was uh, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high, uh, with a cubit using 18 inches. That would be 450 feet. So it's the same length as the Wyoming. But it's kind of cheating a little because the Wyoming is going from the, the bowsprit to the, uh, the back um, pole off the back. And... Uh, The ark was 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. So, uh, yeah, it was a a much bigger boat, but it survived a storm. Uh, You mentioned something before we went on the air. I thought that was interesting, is that um, all of the animals before the flood that survived were on the ark, and the animals that did not survive were on the Wyoming because they had become coal. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The Wyoming was a coal carrier. (laughs) You want to be a Noah's Ark if you're the animal, for sure. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, this reminds me of a verse that Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 24. And this is verse 37 to 39. But as the days of Noah were, 
so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Seems to indicate, Pastor Ross, that um, it's going to seem like life's going on with some normalcy when the end finally hits. Mm -hmm. Of course, the ark was built, and then all the animals entered into the ark, and that probably stirred people up. But then the door was closed, and it seemed as though things just kept going on the same for the next seven days. As a matter of fact, the people outside the ark probably began to mock Noah and his family inside the ark. But then suddenly the sky grew dark, and the flood came. Yeah, absolutely. And he warns us that, uh, you know, in the last days, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And just because it looks like life is going on, it says before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, had planning marriages, usually looking forward when you plan a marriage. They were planting, they were building. Those are things a person does when they're looking forward. And then, boom, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. When they woke up that morning, um, it was a beautiful day. You know, birds were tweeting from flower to flower, and and uh, I guess the birds were going from branch to branch. The butterflies were going to the flowers. Unless the hummingbirds. Yeah, but then after Lot and his family got out, it says God rained down fire and brimstone. So Jesus warns us that when the end comes, it's going to come suddenly, and uh, there's not going to be an airplane riding it in the sky. Mm -hmm. But we see some of the same signs happening in the world today. We do have a book that talks about end-time events, and it's, uh, it's called The Last Night on Earth. And it talks about this passage of Scripture as well as others. How can we be ready for what is yet to come? This is our free offer for this evening. If you'd like to receive it, all you have to do is call the number 800-835-6747, and you want to ask for offer number 101. Again, it's called The Last Night on Earth, and we'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. It's 800-835-6747. Ask for the last night on earth, and we'll be happy to put it in the mail. If you're in North America, if you're outside of North America, please just go to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org. You'll be able to read the book right there online. If you have a Bible question, I see a number of folks already called in, and they're waiting. But if you have a Bible question, the number to call is 800-463-7297. That's 800-463-7297. We want to greet our friends, Pastor Doug, who are watching on Amazing Facts TV. I know there's folks watching on the Internet, also on Good News TV, mm -hmm. and then also on Facebook. Yep. Incidentally, we might want to just mention, if you're watching on Facebook, Pastor Doug's Facebook uh, page, also the Amazing Facts Facebook page, if you have a Bible question, you can type it there in the comment section. And at the end of the program, we're going to try and answer uh, the questions that have already come in mm -hmm. on our Facebook page. So you can do that. All right. We'll have prayer and we'll go All to prayer. All right. Friends. Let's do that. Dear Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to study the Bible together. And we do ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us here in the studio and those who are listening wherever mm -hmm. they are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First caller that we have this evening is from the Virgin Islands. We have uh, Sahaya. Sahaya, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. So uh, my question is, how was the idea of limbo created? The teaching of limbo is not found in the Bible. The teaching of limbo is a construct that has come from a Roman Catholic theology, and uh, it's, it's uh, describing sort of an in-between world between heaven and hell um, where souls are kept. And to be honest with you, I've not studied limbo in depth because I don't find it in the Bible. I like to spend most of my time studying 
the true and not uh, kind of manufactured teachings. As with purgatory, purgatory is another teaching where supposedly in the Catholic Church you you die, but you know because heaven is holy, and for you to get to holy, you need to go through a purging, and so you go through this fiery uh, experience of purgatory to prepare you for heaven. So um, those teachings aren't in the Bible. And I think the Catholic Church has actually abandoned the teaching of limbo. I could be wrong, but I thought I read a few years ago that they no longer teach that. All right. Well, thank you for your call. We've got Martha who is listening in California. Martha, welcome to the program. Thank you, pastors, um, for taking my call. Um, my question is uh, based on Genesis 2-7. Uh, some of my friends, you know, believe that when you die, your soul goes to heaven. But after reading Genesis 2-7, which says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That gives me the impression that once a person dies and the breath of life is gone, that the soul ceases to exist. Is that correct? Well, yeah, essentially uh, you could look at it in these terms. The Bible tells us, and the word, the word uh, soul there, uh, or rather spirit or breath, it's, it's talking about pneuma. Well, in the Greek it's roach. I'm sorry, in the Hebrew it's roach. In the Greek, it's pneuma is the word. They both mean breath. And the um, Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 12 that when a person dies, you basically have creation in reverse. It says that the body returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit or the breath of life returns to God who gave it. So right now, we think and function and operate because we have this gift of life, this breath of life, and it functions in our bodies. We experience life in our bodies. Our brains even dream in our bodies. When you die, you know, who you are basically is kind of, it's the uh, programming that God has. He saves that and he's going to, in the resurrection, he kind of puts it all in a new body. We don't, uh, we don't go to heaven with the old bodies. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So we have a special study guide that actually deals with the subject of death. And it's got all the verses that explain uh, the breath of life. And we'll be happy to share a copy with you. Martha. The study guide is called, Are the Dead Really Dead? And all you have to do to receive that is just call 800-835-6747. You can ask for the study guide, Are the Dead Really Dead? We'll be happy to send it to anyone in North America. You know, Pastor Doug, we also have a website called deathtruth.com. And if you want to go to that website, it's got a number of verses. There's actually sermons you can watch there, a lot of great resources, just deathtruth.com. Martha, thank you for your call. We've got Craig listening from Washington. Craig, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you, you guys. Uh, yeah. I just want to say you guys have been inspirational to me, and I thank you so much for your work. Well, it's a joy to do it. Thank you so much for your uh, encouragement, Craig, and your question tonight. Yeah, it was on Revelation 19.10 um, where it says... Um, that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Yes. And, and I hear all the time the gift of prophecy rather than the spirit of prophecy. And I was just wondering because when I read John six sixty three, it um, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to are spirit and their life. 
and you're, you know, what does that mean? But you go back through John, John 2, 3, 4. But John 2 says, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so, um, you know, Jesus uses literal things like the temple and applies them in an illustrative application to other literal things like his body. And that's the spirit, right, of his language. And so when it says the testimony of Jesus, what he says is the spirit of prophecy. And in prophecy, you got Babylon, which is not literal Babylon, the city, but it's a false religious system. And you got all kinds of, you know, Israel is not the literal Israel, but spiritual Israel. And so I was just wondering, um, you know, is that, could that be what it's talking about or is it? Well, let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, when you read there in Revelation, first of all, you look in Revelation 12 in the last verse and it says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And so you wonder, what is the testimony of Jesus? Well, you go to Revelation 19 there in verse 10, the angel tells John the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, that goes along with Isaiah chapter 8, where it talks about the law and the prophets. You can read that in Isaiah 8 verse 16, and you can read it in Isaiah 8 verse 20, where it tells us to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. I would not overcomplicate it if I were you, Craig, because it's simply talking about the law and the prophets there. Uh, it says the woman keeps the commandments of God and is the testimony of Jesus. And, you know, one of the gifts of the Spirit is prophecy. So calling it a gift or calling it the spirit of prophecy, they're kind of interchangeable. It's the Holy Spirit that gives the gift of prophecy. So it's basically just saying these two characteristics of God's church in the last days is she's got the law and the prophets. She has the truth, the gifts of prophecy and obedient commandment keeping. You know, the verse I think you referred to, Pastor Doug, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, speaking about the church and what the Spirit gives to the church. Mm -hmm. And he himself, speaking of the Spirit, gave some to be apostles and some prophets. Yeah. So one of the gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the church is the gift of prophecy, also known as the spirit of prophecy or the testimony of Jesus. It also says that in First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. It's one mm -hmm. of the gifts is the, the, of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. Now we have a book that talks about the two witnesses, the law and the prophets, and it references this verse. We'll send you a free copy. I think it's called The Glorious Mount, Who Are the Two Witnesses? If you'd like to receive that, all you have to do is call once again our resource number. That's 800-835-6747. Ask for the book on the two witnesses called The Glorious Mount. And we'll be able to send that to anyone who calls and asks. We have uh, Josiah listening from New York. Josiah, welcome to the program. Would it be inconsistent with God if he had said something, right, in the Old Testament, then later on... <clears throat> change it in the New Testament. For example, we have the Sabbath, right? Yep. Then another one is, as a Seventh-day Adventist, we say that um, God's Sabbath still exists till today. Then, it's because, well, God does not change. When we read um, Malachi 3, verse 
6 and the book of Hebrews 13, the 8th chapter. So um, in, in terms of, my question is, in terms of who Israel is, would it, would it be inconsistent if God said true Israel was the people from from the... Uh, <clears throat> From the, the um, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendant of Jacob, who later on become Israel, so he was dealing with them. Then why today the church is teaching that true Israel is every anybody who accepts Christ? Okay, let, let's let's talk about that. So God says, "I am the Lord; I change not." And then you read in Hebrews, I think you quoted it was a chapter thirteen. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God called Abraham and the Jewish nation and uh, said that he was going to bless the world through them, then why would God suddenly change and say, now Israel is the church? Well, the descendants of Abraham have always been the church. In other words, he's not changing in that. What's happening is, even in the Old Testament, just because you had Jewish blood didn't mean you were holy and you were going to be saved. There were good descendants of Abraham, and there were some that were, they behaved very badly. Uh, the apostles and Jesus, of course, were descendants of Abraham, and the people that killed Jesus, that handed him over, were also descendants of Abraham. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you say you're children of Abraham, you're not of your children of Abraham, you are of your father, the devil. Now, those were the, the enemies that were fighting against the truth. Then Paul tells us in Romans, he says, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and that circumcision is not in the flesh, it's of the spirit. And if then in Galatians, Paul says, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. So it's always been true, Old and New Testament, that those who came to God and believed, even in the Mosaic law, it says the stranger that accepts the Lord, he was considered, he was adopted into the family. He was grafted in. And then if you had people that were literally children of Abraham or Israel and they were disobedient, they died in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the promised land. So God's terms of salvation have always been for those who follow him. That's his true family. That's always been those who are the uh, spiritual descendants of Abraham. So now we have a book that's called Spiritual Israel mm -hmm. that will explain this perfectly. Uh, Josiah, we'll be happy to send you a free copy. And the number again is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Spiritual Israel. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. Next caller that we have is Ginger listening in Nebraska. Ginger, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. Thank you for calling. My question is, are angels only in human form or are angels in different living forms? And what is a good Bible verse on angels? Well, you know, it seems like an angel spoke through a donkey in the story of Balaam, and that would be a good angel. And it seems like a bad angel spoke through the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and that would be the devil. And so uh, can angels speak through or, or manipulate other creatures? Uh, you also have a story where some angels, some demons, filled a herd of pigs, and the pigs went berserk and ran off a cliff. Uh, so whether they took the form of pigs, uh, you know, I, I don't know. The Bible does say concerning the devil, and I think this is in Second Corinthians 11, it says Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So angels have some ability maybe to transform their appearance. And that's why we've got to be careful because some fallen angels have sometimes pretended to be the spirits of dead people to manipulate others. So I don't know. What do you think, Pastor Yeah, Ross? we have the example, for example, of um, 
uh, let's say it was King Saul that went to the witch of Endor and an evil spirit impersonated the prophet Samuel. That's right. At least it appeared that mm -hmm. it was Samuel. So there you have an evil spirit um, you know, trying to take the place or represent a deceased loved one. Uh, and yeah, it does seem as though they can at least take possession of animals. Uh, you mentioned the pigs and others, yeah. and the serpent. Of course, there's a dragon in the book of Revelation yeah. <laughs> described as the devil too. <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah, powerful beings. And there's good ones and bad ones. Now, Ginger, I've got a message online you can watch for free on YouTube. And it's just uh, the truth about angels. You can type in Doug Batchelor, Amazing Facts. And uh, we've got a couple of messages that go into depth talking about angels. Okay, thank you. We've got Robert listening in Washington. Robert, welcome to the program. Yes, it's uh, about, I was reading in Matthew chapter 5 about the scribes and the Pharisees and how unless you've got their righteousness, unless you exceed their righteousness, then you won't be able to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, that's verse 20. Right. And, and they were really rigorous and and just had all these uh, hundreds or thousands of rules kind of thing. So um, is it easy to get into the kingdom of heaven or is it hard? Okay, good question. Is it hard or easy to get into the kingdom of heaven? Uh, by the way, before we even answer this question, I don't want to forget to let you know we have a book and I don't think we've offered it before, but it's in our lineup of uh, free offers. Is it easier to be saved or lost? A great book by Joe Cruz. People automatically think, well, straight is the gate, narrow is the way. It's hard to be saved. But in reality, it's, it's only going to be uh, a few number because few actually look. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's much easier to be saved and to serve Jesus than to serve the devil. The devil's like the Pharaoh. He's a hard taskmaster. Now, when it says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means be saved. When Christ said, unless it exceeds our righteousness, he didn't mean you needed to be more fastidious and exacting than the scribes and Pharisees. He meant you needed to have a better quality of righteousness. They were trusting their own righteousness. We are trusting a higher righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. Uh, they were trusting an outward. Jesus is saying you must have inward uh, change. It's not just your outward actions. It's your inward attitude in your spirit. So, uh, it, yeah, it wasn't saying we needed to be more legalistic than the scribes and Pharisees. He's saying you needed a better quality mm -hmm. than they had. So, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead and uh, make sure and call. Ask for that book. Is it easier to be saved or lost, Robert? And you'll be blessed. The number is 800-835-6747. Ask for the book, Is It Easier to Be Saved or to Be Lost? And we'll send it out to, to you, Robert, or anyone who calls and asks. Got time for one more before the break, I All think. right. I think we have Jeff in Montana. Jeff, welcome to the program. Good evening. Uh, Good evening. Is the instruction of the law in Deuteronomy 24, 3 and 4 still apply today, and specifically in the case of abandonment in the first marriage? And would the abomination before the Lord be because of being with another partner or being married to another? Because wasn't Hosea instructed to take back his wife after she had been with another but not married? Yeah, good, good question. First of all, uh, for our friends listening, well, let me read the verse and then I'll, I'll answer as well as I can. It says here in uh, Deuteronomy 24, I'll start with verse 3. Um, 
Well, if a man divorces a woman and it says if the latter husband she remarries, if her latter husband detests her and writes her certificate of divorcement and puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to wife as she's been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord. Uh, he said that uh, basically, you know, this could start, what do you call it, it could descend into kind of wife swapping. Uh, here, you marry her for a while and that doesn't work out, then I'll marry her back again. Uh, so, you know, the Bible's clear. God wants marriage to be permanent. And if, heaven forbid, there is a divorce, it's divorce is not so you could try it out with someone else and that doesn't work out, then you go back. Now, what happened with Hosea, and, and, and let me just back up. Sometimes a man or woman will have an affair and those marriages can be redeemed. Be very clear about that. Um, and the Lord tells us that he's forgiving. God tells Hosea to marry uh, a harlot. Now that's not normally what he tells religious leaders to do. This was to be an illustration, a living illustration of how God was willing to love and take back the church, his bride, even though she had been unfaithful many times and gone after idols. And when she was unfaithful again, he said, take her back again to illustrate that even after uh, many uh, times of being a repeat offender, the church has wandered from God, God forgives her, and he takes her back. It's the history of not only Israel, but the history of the church. And of course, the specific uh, law that we find in the Old Testament, Jesus comments on this in Matthew chapter 19, speaking to the religious leaders about the certificate of divorce. He says, Moses said this because of the hardness of your hearts. So this was not God's plan, at least not in the beginning, but because mm -hmm. of their stubbornness and the hardness of their hearts, he allowed uh, that that law, the certificate of divorce. So in one sense, yeah, it's it's true that God was trying to, without a doubt, limit or help people to recognize the sacredness of marriage. Mm -hmm. It was to be a long, uh, you know, a, a lifelong commitment. Uh, but even that was plan B. Plan A was for them to remain married, as yeah. Jesus brings it out. Yeah, God doesn't want uh, his, his people going from... Uh, uh, a man and woman being married, and they say, oh, we're having difficulties. I think I'll go try and marry this other person. And, oh, that didn't work out. I'll come back and marry you again. And basically saying that uh, so, some people start thinking the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, and God created this law to prevent people from ever thinking, I'll try that, and then I can come back. They needed to know marriage was permanent and divorce was permanent. And it's a very, very serious matter. So, listening friends, all right, don't go away. We've got more Bible questions coming. And uh, don't forget, you can also take a look at our website during the break, amazingfacts.org. A lot of the offers can be found there as well. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Are you looking for a simple way to share your faith? If you've ever found yourself tongue-tied when trying to explain what the Bible teaches about the Sabbath the second coming, or the afterlife. You'll love the new Amazing Facts tracts. These colorful tracts feature easy-to-read type and are large enough to grab everyone's attention, but small enough to fit in your pocket to carry with you wherever you go. Eleven key Bible teachings are available now. Purchase a sample bundle to see what fits your needs, then buy them in bulk and save. Equip yourself and your church to reach your community with the eye-catching Amazing Facts tracts. Amazing Facts Tracts. Easy to read, easy to share. To order your sample bundle, call 800-538-7275. 
or visit afbookstore.com and get ready to share your faith like never before. Okay, friends, let's start with the basics. We know we're here, but we're not here for very long. So the most important thing would be if we could learn during this life how to live forever. This is the central focus of Amazing Facts. Now, there's a lot of wonderful things that Christian ministries do. I believe in Christian education. But if the schools lose the message of salvation, you end up with more educated sinners. I think it's very important for us to build churches. But if the churches lose the message of salvation, they just become buildings and shells. I think it's important to have a medical ministry and build hospitals. But if they separate that from the message of salvation, you just prolong a sinner's life for a little while. That's why for years, Amazing Facts has made it our focus to present the saving truth that sets people free. And friends, we want to thank you for your support and your gifts. We'll do our very best to convert those resources into the currency of heaven. May God bless you and keep Amazing Facts in your prayers. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you've got Bible questions, then give us a call. This is a live, interactive, international Bible study. And you can call the number 800-GOD-SAYS or 800-463-7297. And we will search the word together for the answers. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross, and we've got uh, Barbara, who's listening in Tennessee. Barbara, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, the Bible says that the punishment for sin is death, and of course, Christ died on the cross and took that punishment, justifying us. But what about his suffering? Did his suffering in any way contribute to our justification? I'm sorry. Did his suffering in any way contribute to our justification and or sanctification? And I was actually looking at 1 Peter 2.24. All right. Well, let me read that for our friends who are watching. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So uh, what about his suffering? We know the penalty for sin is death, but that that statement is actually a summary. The penalty for sin is not just death. The penalty for sin is punishment according to your works and death. So Jesus not only died on the cross, it's not like they, they just flipped a switch and Jesus went to sleep. Jesus suffered and died. And the suffering was the punishment for our sins. There are varying degrees of reward for both uh, obedience and service and sacrifice and also for sin and disobedience. Jesus said that he that knew his master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many stripes. 
he that did not know his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with few stripes. So to be really honest, the penalty for sin is not just dying, like you close your eyes and it's for eternal darkness. It's suffering and death. And so Jesus suffered for our sins on the cross. Mm -hmm. We also have the verse in Revelation chapter 22. It says that Je when Jesus comes, he brings his rewards with him to give to every man according to their works. That's right. So there is a degree, and of course that does involve suffering for the wicked. It's amazing. You read, for example, in the Bible, you read about the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus went through, where it seems if the angel did not come and strengthen him, he would have died right there just bearing the weight of the mm. sins of the world. Yeah. Uh, there was amazing, incredible suffering, more than we can ever imagine, where yeah. Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that was very real. It was, it was Christ bearing our sins. So, yeah, Jesus experienced both mental and physical suffering mm -hmm. taking our punishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, one more thought on that, Barbara, is there's the parable of Matthew 18 where this unmerciful servant, he owes this incredible debt to the king, king forgives him, but then he refuses to forgive a fellow servant and has his fellow servant punished for a little debt. The king says, your forgiveness is revoked to the wicked servant, and he says, you are now going to the tormentors to pay your debt. So there is punishment for sin. All right. Next caller that we have is also listening in Tennessee. We have Jeff in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Jeff, welcome to the program. I was just kind of wondering um, when a person loses a spouse and possibly remarries years down the road, um, how does that play out on Resurrection Day? Is it feasible for that person to end up with two spouses? Well, you know, your question, and maybe Pastor Ross will look at that where the Sadducees asked Jesus a very similar question. They put, a, um, they put a proposition to Jesus of a scenario where this woman marries a man and, and he dies before her. And so according to the old Hebrew law, his brother took her in and marries her and then he dies. And then she marries another brother and he dies. And I guess she goes through uh, seven brothers. They all die. And then she dies eventually from old age. And uh, <laughs> I wouldn't marry her after you know the third or fourth guy dies. I think she's bad luck. But anyway, so this is the illustration that they gave Jesus. And they said, who is she married to in the resurrection? And Jesus said to them, you do err. Now, did you have the verse that you want to read? Yes, it? Matthew chapter 22, verse, um, the answer, Jesus answers verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken, not knowing the scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Right. So it seems like in heaven, you know, one of the reasons God has marriage and procreation, he said, be fruitful and fill the earth. You know, God wants us to have a loving relationships with everybody, but there was something unique about marriage relationships. Now, does that mean that when Adam and Eve get to heaven, assuming they're both saved, that God gives them divorce papers? Not necessarily. I mean, people who are married to their best friend, what would prevent them from being best friends in heaven? And there are going to be pleasures in heaven that will far outweigh any physical pleasure of marital intimacy. That Paul says you can't even imagine the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And so no one's going to get to heaven and feel like that they've lost out. If you want to be with your former spouse, uh, then, uh, you know, by all means. You know, I've often thought about when, when uh, King David will be in heaven, Sounds like Uriah will be in heaven. He was a faithful soldier, worshiped God. Bathsheba, sounds like she'll be in heaven. 
And so uh, that's going to be an interesting reunion if you know the story because David had Uriah killed to take his wife. And they're all going to be in heaven because they all repented and, and uh, be strange. So who's David married to? Who's Uriah married to? Probably, you know, not going to be married to anybody. <laughs> they're going to just be friends with their friends. All right. Well, thanks, Yukol. Uh, you know, the Bible does say, Pastor Doug, I has not seen nor yet heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God is preparing for those that love him. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you speak to young people and they think, well, I don't want Jesus to come just yet. I haven't had a chance to get married. Yeah. Well, no, you won't be disappointed when you get to heaven for sure. That's right. We've got Oscar listening, listening in New York. Oscar, welcome to the program. Yes, sir. Thank you. I would like to understand salvation. I was talking to a man, and he told me that if we have a choice, then God will not be in complete control. So my question is, do we have a choice, or do we respond to God when it comes to salvation? Well, you absolutely have a choice, because that's why Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. And Jesus said, whosoever believes in me, Uh, shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know, the only way that we can love God is because we have a choice. If we are pre-programmed or forced to love God, it stops being love. It's just we become robots that are just repeating, I love you, God, I love you, God. And it's like we'd have no choice. But love must be freely given. It must be an intelligent choice. And so, you know, Nothing is more important than the exercise of the will, and God has given humans a free will. So absolutely, we can choose to follow Jesus. Some chose yes, and some chose no. Some started out yes, and then they changed their minds. Some started out saying no, like the boys in the parable, and then one repented and said, I I will follow you. I will do my Father's will. So, yeah, we are free moral agents that can choose. Yes, we mentioned the book a little earlier, Can a Saved Man Choose to Be Lost?, well, that deals with that same subject. Yeah, uh, please order that, choose. Oscar. It's free. The number to call is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book, Can a Saved Man Choose to be Lost? And it deals with uh, the subject of predestination. What does the Bible teach on that? We've got Kelly listening in Utah. Kelly, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you. Um, I have a question that has to do with two Bible verses. The first one is Psalm 5-4 that says, for thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. And then I'm looking at Job 2, where it says, Once again the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming the earth and patrolling it. I'm just wondering, how is, Satan able to be in the presence of God if he's evil. Yeah, that, yeah, especially after you read uh, Psalm uh, 5 and verse 4. Well, I don't think that uh, the devil abides in the presence of God. I don't think the devil enjoys the presence of God. The Bible tells us that Satan claims to be the prince of this world. Of course, we know that the devil was in the presence of Jesus when he came to tempt him. And we know there was a war in heaven where Michael and his angels threw out the devil and his angels. But Satan has claimed this world because Adam and Eve surrendered dominion when they chose to obey the devil. And so whenever these heavenly leaders get together, as you have in uh, Revelation 5 and in the book of Job chapter 1, I think it's Job 1 and 2, 
that uh, Satan comes saying he's a representative of the earth. I don't think he abides in his heaven. I don't know how close he gets to God's presence, but he comes close enough to make accusations. So I don't know if that's answering your question, Kelly. D does that make sense? Um, yeah, it's just kind of like me, for instance. I can't be in the presence of God because of my sin. And I guess, you know, I'm still able to talk to God and stuff like that, but well, keep in mind that uh, you and I can't, we can't see good angels and we can't see bad angels unless there's a, so a rare manifestation. Sometimes good angels and bad angels might appear. But um, we're, we're physical creatures. We kind of lost our spiritual dimension with sin. Uh, the, the devil is a spirit. The Bible says we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but spiritual powers in heavenly places. And so as a spirit, then Jesus says God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. There's a whole different world uh, that's going on out there that we've kind of lost contact with. So it's hard for me to, um, to identify with that. But it is different, I think, for humans than it is for angels. All right. Well, thank you for your, your call. We've got Linda listening in California. Linda, welcome to the program. Um, my question is Psalms 91.1. It talks about the secret place of the Most High. Um, how do we dwell in that secret place? What is that secret place? Oh, that is a good question. You know, I think that what it's describing here is the spirit-filled life. Paul talks about those who are in Christ. And when we surrender our lives and we experience the new birth, we can live lives where we are in communion with God we're walking with God like Enoch, that we are living in trust. Paul had that experience where he said, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. You know, I'm totally in God's will. Whatever God wants to do with me is his business because I am in God, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think, Pastor Ross? What is yeah, that secret absolutely. place? Well, you know, I think it also refers to a, a special time of communion with God. We know that Jesus arose early in the morning and he spent time in prayer. Without a doubt, he spent time reading and studying. And I think if we do that on a, on a regular basis, every day, take some time, spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, we are dwelling in that secret place of power mm -hmm. where the Spirit of God is working in our hearts and in our lives. And that is a place of peace. That is a place of joy. It becomes our fortress in a world of sin. And that's how a person lives a victorious life. So I think that's also part of dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. Amen. All right. Thank you. And that's a good answer. It's also your personal devotions is another way to be in that secret place. Next caller that we have is um, Tay Vis Vision. Tay Vision from Illinois. Tay Vision, welcome to the program. My um, question is in regards to Numbers 31, verse 18. And essentially those, essentially those who were committing adultery or who had slept with a man, they were to be killed. And I believe it was the sons and the males were to be killed, but the wives were to be uh, uh, left alive for yourselves. The, like, like I'm quite certain that's not like saying in a sense that they promoted um, like sexual slavery, but rather like, what does it mean? All right. Yeah. Good question. And these are tough times, you know, and Moses is giving a law here regarding war. And sometimes they, when one nation fought against another nation, uh, they didn't want to keep fighting that battle. They would annihilate them. Um, but God told Moses, he said, look, um, if you go to war with your enemy, uh, the, the 
boys might grow up and want vengeance. Everyone believed that you had a a blood feud forever. If your parents or grandparents were killed by nation, they were forever your enemies. So they would often annihilate all the soldiers and the males and the women who were married. But the uh, the young ladies that were not uh, married, they could be um, eligible to be saved and be wives in Israel. They were treated with the respect of wives. They were not treated like uh, sex slaves, as you said. So, uh, you know, that was the... Um, that was this kind of some of the barbaric, uh, barbaric times in which they lived. Mm-hmm. And of course, part of it, as you mentioned, Pastor Doug, is in order for Israel to preserve a true faith and uh, true worship, they had to uh, limit the influence that the pagan nations around them would have on them. And if there was not this type of um, cleansing of the land, uh, and of course, even though that happened, we still see Israel drifting back into idolatry and following the customs of the pagan nations. It would have been so much worse if if they had allowed those nations to remain. Yeah. And one more thing in that verse that you're asking about, uh, this is dealing with a battle against the Moabites. And the Moabite women had gone in among the men to seduce them into idolatry. And if you look a little earlier, Moses says in verse 16, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, where there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man. Because some of those women who had gone in to seduce the men and lead them into idolatry. But he said, you can spare the, the maidens that were uh, unbetrothed. So there was, this was connected with uh, an actual event where those women had seduced the men Mm -hmm. of Israel into sin. All right, thanks for your call. We've got Charles listening in uh, Somerset, California. Charles, welcome to the program. Hey, great talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks for calling. I was wondering where the authority comes from to use the day your principle in Daniel 8, 14, when the original Hebrew word yom, uh, Strong's number 317, uh, or day is not in that text. That, for your audience, is, is the uh, word used in Numbers and Ezekiel, which God allows to be translated into years, but it's not in Daniel 8.14. Yep, let, let's talk about it. Um, now, in this, this is a prophecy about the um, 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And uh, some places it says 2,000 evenings and mornings, and it's talking about the Day of Atonement. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, they had this special ceremony. So whether you say you apply the day for the year uh, principle, that would be 2,300 years, or if you say 2,300 Days of Atonement, well, the Day of Atonement only came once a year. So you're saying 2,300 Days of Atonement, that's 2,300 years. You end up with the same, the same uh, answer either way. I don't know, maybe Pastor Ross has something to add. Yeah, you know, the actual expression itself literally translated as evening morning mm-hmm. or evenings mornings. Well, there's only one morning and one evening every day. So if there's 2,300 evening and 2,300 mornings, well, that would mean there's 2,300 days. We also see a very similar description in Genesis, the, f- the evening and the morning were the first day. Right. The same kind of idea. So there's a clear connection between the word evening mornings to an actual 24-hour period or a day. Yeah, and the, for the Jews, they had, in a day, they would have the morning and the evening sacrifice. So it's describing a day. 
And it's so, connected with the yeah. sanctuary. Either way, whether you say it's 2,300 days of atonement or 2,300 days and a day is a year in prophecy, the prophecy, and the other thing is, it only works that way. If you say that the um, the 2,300 day prophecy in Daniel 8, 14, if they're literal days, 2,300 days doesn't reach to any event that fills the prophecy. But if you do 2,300 years, it certainly does. So it also fits. That's one more argument. <laughs> right, right. And we see some consistency throughout these various numbers in the book of Daniel, referring to one prophetic day is equal to one literal year, Yeah. also in Revelation. All right, thanks for your call. We've got Linda listening in uh, Arizona. Linda, welcome to the program. I am conflicted um, concerning Romans 7:19 through 25. And I associated with self-sabotage, and it was when Paul was speaking, because I have been filled with the Holy Spirit, but I have not gained obedience, and I have had the Holy Spirit since 2003, and I've always struggled with that. It's like a spiritual warfare within, so can you please explain Romans 7? 19 through 25. All right. Well, let me read this. I may not be able, because we've only got a few minutes, may not be able to uh, unpack all of it. But let me read verses 19 and 20. For the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil that I do not, that I practice. Now, if I do that which I will not, it's no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. So I find that a law of evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law according to the inward man, but I see another law at war in my members, uh, making war, bringing me in captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he asks a question, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Talking about this, the, the lust and the problems of the flesh. Then he answers, I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You have to read the next verse in chapter 8. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, for one thing, don't be discouraged thinking, well, that means I'll never sin again. One thing the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of our sin. Uh, you know, when the whole light is turned on, sometimes there's pain and there might be a struggle as a baby's learning to walk. Do not be discouraged, Linda. Continue to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, that same God who helped me give up drugs and drinking and cursing and all those other evil things. Uh, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it. It doesn't necessarily change in one day. This is called the process of sanctification. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we gain victory step by step. And so the Lord leads us. And, uh, you know, I remember there was a lady that joined our church one time and she said, before I received Christ, I thought all I had to do was stop smoking and I'd be perfect. 
while God gave her victory over smoking, she realized, wait, there's some other things in life that God is leading me as well. And so our growth in grace is a, is a journey. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. We mustn't give up, though. We keep pressing towards the mark. Absolutely. And, and there is a battle in the Christian life, the battles in life no matter what. You know, Paul said we wrestle, we strive, we war, we run, we resist. There is some effort. And, you know, you want to do uh, what you can to avoid temptation. By the way, that would be a good book. I think that would be a blessing for you, Linda. We'll send you a free book, Tips on Resisting Temptation. Also talks about how do you get the victory. Mm -hmm. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book, Tips for Resisting Temptation. The Bible says a righteous man, he might fall seven times, but he gets up. And so the key is not giving up. Keep trusting Keep seeking the Lord. All things are possible through Christ. Yeah, and the, the principle that we see this, the apostles talking about is growing in grace. We grow in holiness in following the Lord. So you, what you're sharing, Linda, thousands out there, millions out there have the same struggle. You're not alone, but you can grow in grace. It is possible to be a new creature where old things are passed away and all things become new. All right, Pastor Ross, I don't think we have time for uh, another question. However, we do want to remind friends, we do have to um, say goodbye to those listening on satellite radio here in just a minute and a half. But for those of you all watching on Amazing Facts TV or you're listening on a land-based radio station, we are going to be coming back with some rapid-fire Bible questions. And these are the questions that you have written in to us here at Amazing Facts. If you have a Bible question, we didn't get to it in the program tonight. And if you're watching on social media, you can just type your Bible question right there on Facebook and we'll gather these questions together. And next week, we'll try to answer as many of these questions as we can um, after we, we take a little break that's coming up here in about a minute. But you know, Pastor Doug, we always like to remind people that there are many resources available to them for further study mm -hmm. at Amazing Facts. That's right. Now, if someone wants to send in a Bible question to for next week, uh, what's the address for that? It's balquestions at amazingfacts.org. And I see they put that on the screen. balquestions at amazingfacts.org. And you can send us your question and we will try and answer it on the air. Yeah, so we kind of sign off in two stages. We sign off, we say so long, Arriva uh, Dirce, aloha to our friends listening on satellite. And then we take two minutes where we're still on the air and we're going to be taking Bible questions for everybody else that's listening in. And you can send us those online Bible questions. This is where we try to go through it a as quickly as we can. It's, it's sort of like a test, rapid-fire Bible <laughs> questions. Yeah. But for all our friends that are out there on the road or listening on satellite radio, God bless you. God willing, we will be back to study His Word with you again next week. For the others, stand by. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Welcome back, friends. We've got about uh, two and a half minutes left, and we're going to try to answer as many questions that have been written into the ministry. Who does the pregnant woman in the book of Revelation represent? All right. Now, you'll find that in Revelation chapter 12, talks about a woman standing on the moon, clothed with the sun, 12 stars above her head, this is the church of the Lord, the bride of Christ, standing on the moon, the promises of the Old Testament, clothed with the sun, the glory of Jesus in the New Testament, 12 stars talking about the leadership, patriarchs in the Old Testament, 
tribes, apostles in the New Testament, and uh, the devil's out to get her and persecute mm-hmm. her. And that's what you see. The dragon's mad at her. Okay, next question that we have. Does the Bible say capital punishment is okay? Well, you know, I don't want to make it sound like when you say okay, I mean, sure, let's kill him. <laughs> but uh, does the Bible allow for that? And the answer would have to be a categorical yes. The Bible's very clear. Uh, that's why Jesus died in our place. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, sometimes you've got certain crimes that uh, did invite the death penalty. And in the Mosaic Law, not only had the death penalty, it, it had the mercy for different crimes. A person might commit, un, uh, what do you call, unintentional manslaughter, and they could flee to a city of refuge. So uh, there's a lot of justice in the laws that you find God gave Moses. Okay, next question that we have is, why is there a wall necessary around the New Jerusalem? Yeah, walls, people think the walls are to keep uh, enemy armies out, but that's not the only purpose of walls. You might have a, uh, a wall around your house, and it's basically a boundary. And so walls can also just point out the boundary of this is the city of God. And uh, there can, can be uh, different rights within the wall that you do not have outside the wall. This would be of cities. We're going to not only have a city home Jesus built, we're going to have country homes outside the wall. And then, of course, at the end of the thousand years, when the New Jerusalem comes down, the wicked are resurrected and they're outside the wall. So they you have do the attack for a while. Yeah. They do. They mount an attack right. upon the city. Okay, another question that we have. If we are saved by faith, why does Revelation say that we are judged according to our works? Yeah, that's not inconsistent. Uh, your faith will be seen in your works. This is what James is saying in chapter 2. He said, you know, we're saved by faith, but if you have faith, let me see your faith. Your faith will be demonstrated in your behavior. And so uh, while we are saved by faith and by God's grace, we're judged by our works because your works after salvation will demonstrate whether you really were saved. Oh, you hear the music chasing us, friends. We enjoyed this so much. We'll look forward to studying His Word with you again next week. God bless you. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, Call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.